And as we study this book of Ephesians, we need to understand that that Paul is addressing Gentile Christians who lived in one of the wickedest cities of the ancient world. Ephesus was a place of moral decadence. Uh, It was a place of extreme idolatry. And I suppose that it must have been very much like the city of Athens that Paul described as one where there were idols everywhere. There were altars to so many gods and every imaginable heathen god these people worshipped. And it must have really been a, a shock to Paul's system to go to such places as this and to know that God had called him to be a missionary to these pagans, uh, these heathenish people. Remember the background of Paul. I mean, he was, a, he was a devout Jew. He called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He said that as touching the law that he was blameless. And so Paul was one who, if there was anybody who didn't believe that a Gentile could be saved, it would be the Apostle Paul. But as we know, God changed his mind. God saved him. Paul was on the road to Damascus, and God saved him. And then he turned Paul's life around, and he took this very same man who before hated Gentiles, and who also was a persecutor of Christians, and he made the apostle Paul the most effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ that the world has ever seen. But it's hard to imagine that Paul could go to a city like Ephesus and he would begin to preach to them and and see what kind of lifestyles that they lived and thinking about them being Gentiles and just the the terrible things that they were involved in. You just have to think he was totally conflicted with his calling and having to preach to such people. And when we come here to the book of Ephesians, as we read it, we see that Paul is not pretentious at all about describing how terrible the Gentiles' condition is. Now, folks, as we read the Word of God, it's remarkable to us that God would ever save a Jew. But when we think about the history of Israel and we look at what the Bible has to say about the exclusion of the Gentiles under the Old Testament law, not only is it remarkable that God would save a Jew, but it's also utterly remarkable and perhaps even more than remarkable that God would save a Gentile. And so what Paul does in this section of the scripture, he tackles this monumental task of trying to explain how that Gentiles can now be brought into the covenant of grace. And he's explaining how that uh, the Gentiles now have a standing that's equal with the Jews. And that's something I don't think that he would have ever imagined before God saved him. But I suppose the condition of the Gentiles could best be summed up in two words that Paul uses in these scriptures. And we find those words in verse number 12, where Paul says that they are without Christ. The Gentiles are without Christ. And when Paul said that, it wasn't just the mere fact that that they... uh, Uh, didn't know about Christ. I mean, it's much more than that because this is more than just not knowing about him. It's having no rights in Christ. It's having no privileges. It's having no promise of Christ. And when you have no rights and you have no privileges and you have no promise, then, of course, you are without hope. Now, this evening, I want to talk to you about this great dilemma that Paul mentions here, and it's the danger of being without Christ. So if you'll stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. We want to look in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 11. Ephesians 2, verse number 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, 
Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I ask you, Lord, you'd help me as I preach tonight. Give me clarity. Help me to preach without difficulty. And Lord, I just pray that you might bless our people tonight as we consider these great words that the Apostle Paul has written. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we read this entire section that begins with verse number 11 and goes all the way down to verse number 22. And last week, we were talking about the basis of fellowship that we can have with other Christians. And we talked about how there are some things on which we ought to fellowship with others, and there are some things on which we should separate ourselves from some Christians. And I think that uh, this evening, we need to take a little bit more detailed look at these scriptures because I gave just an overview of it. So we're going to break this down really over the next two or three lessons and talk about these last few verses. And and tonight, I want to talk about uh, this problem that Paul presents here of the Ephesians being without Christ. Why were they without Christ? And then also, what are the implications of being without Christ? And then lastly, how is this problem rectified? How can it be taken care of? And those are the three different areas that I'd like to consider tonight in this lesson. So the first thing that we want to talk about tonight is the cause of being without Christ. What is the cause of this? What's happened? And the cause of these Gentiles is that they have no heavenly relationship. Why are they without Christ? Well, it's because they have no heavenly relationship. They have no spiritual relationship. And really, they don't even have a temporal relationship with God. And Paul uses just one word to describe this. He says they are uncircumcised. The Gentiles are uncircumcised. And to the Jews, circumcision is the thing that makes all of the difference. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And it was the outward right that God had given Israel to show that they were a different people. Circumcision is what set them apart from all the other nations of the world. And the Gentiles did not have this covenant with God. They weren't included in this right of circumcision. So first of all, I want us to notice about this, that Paul says that they are outside of God's covenant. They are outside of the covenant of Christ. Now, God gave this sign and this symbol to no other people but Israel. They're God's chosen people, and all the other nations were left in uncircumcision. This all began way back when God gave the promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, God spoke to Abraham, and he said, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Now that is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And there aren't any other people who are included in this covenant. And so this means that God has no relationship with any other people. And so in our text verses here in verse number 12, Paul calls this strangers from the covenants of promise. They are outside the covenant that God gave Abraham. Now, there's something that we need to understand about this rite of circumcision and the covenant with Abraham because it is in this very rite itself, in the rite of circumcision, that Israel failed. I mean, to the Jews, this outward sign of circumcision is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what their hearts are like. It doesn't matter to them where they have a personal relationship with God. It was the outward rite of circumcision that they were looking to. And so they were truly confused about what it was that made a person truly righteous with God. 
And this is exactly what Paul is explaining in the book of Romans when he talks about Abraham and the issue of circumcision. And he asks a very simple question to get down to the, to the heart of the matter. And he asks those people, he says, when was Abraham When was Abraham justified? Was it when he was in circumcision or was it when he was in uncircumcision? And Paul goes on to point out how that faith is the operative thing here. That it's faith by which Abraham was justified. And so obviously, Abraham was not justified by the fact that he was circumcised. But he was justified before he was circumcised. And that's the whole reason why he became circumcised. Because he trusted God's promise and what God told him would take place. But nonetheless, the Gentiles didn't have this outward rite of circumcision. And neither did they have any kind of inward uh, qualities or anything that God would want that would commend them to God. So they're outside the promises of God. Then the next thing we note that Paul says here is they are outside of the community of God's people. They're outside of this company of people that God calls his chosen people. Now in verse number 12, Paul states they are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now I think it's interesting here that he uses these words without Christ. And and it might seem a little bit odd to us for him to state it this way. Why does he say without Christ? Because everything that he's talked to about uh, uh, talked about up to this point has to do with ancient Israel. It has to do with promises that were made, things that happened two thousand years before this time. And so, why is he describing the Gentiles' condition as being without Christ? Christ won't even come for two thousand years after Abraham. Well, the reason for it is, is that everything that took place in the Old Testament was all about Christ. You know, it's remarkable to me that the radical dispensationalists can come up with other ways of salvation in the Old Testament other than Christ. And this could not be any clearer than the way that Paul puts it right here in Ephesians. The Old Testament was just as much about Christ as when Christ came, when he came to Bethlehem. The Old Testament was just as much about Christ as when Christ went to the cross. And it's just as much about Christ as when Christ comes back in the second coming. All of this, all of the Bible, all that we do, has everything to do with Christ. And so Paul explains this distinction of not being a part of the commonwealth of Israel and being outside of the community of Israel in that the Gentiles for 2,000 years were without Christ, even before Christ came. And so without Christ, there is no heavenly relationship. There's no covenant. There's no community with God's people. Now, let me explain something here that we really don't want to miss when we talk about the community of God's people. Because community, this is God's method. And that's always been God's method from time memorial. And this is what I'm speaking of, that God has always constituted a people. God has always had his people. God has always formed a community with his people, and he has always set his people apart. And his people have a special relationship with him that no one else has. Now, that's the scene what is seen in what God did with Israel. This was a, a national selection, a national election of Israel to be his chosen people. But more important than that, more important than the physical selection of Israel, is the spiritual selection. And this is what Paul explains in Romans chapter 2 and Romans 9. Let me read just two scriptures for you here. Romans 2 verse 29. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And in Romans 9, verse 6, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And so there is a physical community of Israel. That physical community exists, and the the physical community is all those who are circumcised, all the Jewish males and all their family. They are a part of physical Israel. But what makes the difference here really, in a way a person, if a person knows God, is whether he is a part of spiritual Israel. And these ones who are a part of spiritual Israel are not people that were chosen in circumcision. No, these people have all been chosen long before circumcision had ever been instituted. There's always been a community of God's people, and these, of course, are the elect of God before the foundation of the world. So God has always had a community of people. They're the select, they're the chosen. They're people who are called out by God. And, of course, back in chapter 1, Paul explains to us when all that happened. It was before the foundation of the world. But we see here the Word of God fits so perfectly together. We just have to explore exactly where the Word of God is taking us. So here is the real key, then, to how these Gentiles can be brought into the covenant of grace. Because here they are. They are people with no covenant with, God's, with God in a physical sense. There are people who have no community with God among physical Israel... So how can they become a part of this promise? Well, there's only one way that the Gentiles could ever have been brought in, and that is that they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. See, all we have to do is just read Romans and Ephesians together, and we can see exactly how this thing works. But this is the cause of being without Christ. It's no heavenly relationship, and that has to change before Gentiles can be brought into a covenant of grace. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, this evening, the consequences of this. The consequences of being outside of Christ is that there is no earthly remedy. There there is no way to solve this problem in a natural way. There is nothing on earth that solves the problem. Now, the Gentiles are outside of the Abrahamic covenant, and that covenant was made 2,000 years before any of these Ephesians were born. And so it has to be evident to us then that there is no natural way that any of these people could become a part of Israel. They're not a part of Israel. They will never be a part of physical uh, Israel. They're born outside of the covenant. And so looking at it strictly from man's eyes, here's what they would see. And here's how Paul describes it. He says, number one, letter A on your listening sheet, they are without hope. That's the first thing. Paul says that in verse number 12. He says, you are without Christ. You are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers from the covenants of promise, and consequently, because of this, you have no hope. Now, obviously, what he means is that in their present state, they have been born among the wrong families of the world. There's no hope for you when you're born outside of the wrong family. In other words, here you are. You're out here in the mass of humanity, and quite frankly, God has no special interest in you. You're not one of God's people. You're not physical Israel. So Paul tells the Ephesians, God has no interest in you. And God has no more interest in you than he did with the Canaanites or with the Midianites or with the Philistines. Remember, God told Moses to go in to possess the land. And what did he say? Drive all of those people out. 
He said even kill them all. Don't let them stay. It makes you wonder why that Baptist preachers have so much trouble with God's election. Why aren't they complaining about Moses and about God killing Canaanites and driving them out and leaving those people with no hope? Why does anybody ever complain about that? Because that's exactly what God did. But here's the whole point of the thing. There is no earthly remedy. And I say that it's true today because the world's not getting better. Have you noticed that? Things aren't getting better. The same sins that were committed in the Old Testament are the same sins that are being committed today. Man hasn't elevated himself. You know that's why evolution can't be true? What does the evolutionist say? He says things are getting better. Man's tending towards a higher degree. Man becomes more intelligent. He becomes better all of the time. But man is just as depraved in his heart and his mind as he ever was. Now, there's no evidence nowhere. There is no evidence that there's ever been any spiritual improvement in man. So there is no hope of us getting better, not on our own terms. So either you are in or you're out. You're either a Jew or you're not. You either have hope or you have no hope. You are either with Christ or you are without Christ. And the simple truth of the matter is, these Gentiles are not Jews. And so they don't have any earthly hope. There's no earthly remedy to take care of this. But that's not all that Paul says, because he comes back with another statement. He says, you are without God. Now, I suppose that this would be the ultimate fallback position. So you are without a natural remedy. So you are not a Jew. So you don't have community. You don't have commonwealth with the children of Israel. You don't have any of those things. But at least you do have God. That's the fallback, isn't it? But you have to look at this. Paul takes that away from them as well. He says you don't have God. He says in the end of verse 12, you are without God in the world. Folks, you know that is the fallacy of modern-day Christianity and liberal thinking. We just go up to everybody and we tell them, God loves you. doesn't matter who you are. You're eligible to wear that smiley sticker. You can put on the pen, God loves you. And we tell everybody that. We raise our children in Sunday school to in Sunday school class to think, God loves everybody. God loves me. God loves everybody. And people come out thinking, wow, God will take me just the way that I am. I'm loved of God. I'm nurtured by God. I'm sustained by God. God takes care of me just like he does everybody else. And so it's really not so important that I should know Jesus, is it? Because God loves me. Folks, let me tell you, that is the lie of the devil. Why do you suppose that Paul didn't stop just right here and start handing out those smiley pins? Why didn't he start passing out the tracks and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, he didn't do that because he said, you are without God. He said, you don't have any hope. There is no earthly remedy for you. Friends, let me tell you, the only reason that God loves anybody is because of Jesus Christ. That is the basis for his love. There is no other reason. And so we're lying to people when we just simply tell them, well, God loves you, but they don't have Christ. Christ is the only reason for God's love, and Paul is just blunt enough to tell them this, to tell these Ephesians exactly what kind of state they're in. They are without Christ. They're without God. Now, you need to understand something. God does not send people to hell that he loves. People are not in hell that God loves. Don't get confused about this. People are in hell because of God's wrath. 
They're there because of God's hatred of sin. And you know this is where everybody stops in this whole thing and they start to make a meaningless distinction. And have you ever heard somebody say this? Oh yes, God hates sin. But God loves the sinner. That's a meaningless distinction because there is no sin without the sinner and there is no sinner without the sin. Those things go together. And that's why it says this in Revelation 14, verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into his cup of indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And that's why it says this in John 3.36, just 20 verses after John 3.16. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, the wrath of God does not abide on people that God loves. It's on the sinner that God hates. And that's why there's no hope. There's no earthly remedy because... There's nothing on earth, there's nothing in you, there's nothing in me, there's nothing at all that can make us righteous in the eyes of a holy God. There isn't anything. And that's why it's right down next to blasphemy for Baptist preachers to put out books that claim that God loves you so much that God has done all that he can possibly do for you. And now he has to wait on your decision because he's just tapped out. He can't do anymore. Friend, you're lost. You're doomed without Christ. You have no hope. You're depraved. The Bible says you're hell-bent. You're despicable. You're, you're dead. You're without God. So how could it be possible that we could ever make a decision for Christ? We can't do that. And we will never make decisions for Christ. There is no remedy in ourselves. So how could we ever expect that we could make a right decision? So how is that made? Only God can cause us to do that. Only God can help us from this condition that we're in and enable us to make the right kinds of decisions. Only God, through Jesus Christ, as the Bible calls him, our one mediator, are we enabled that we can trust God. Now, do you see why there's so much danger in being without Christ? It wouldn't be such a bad thing if you had hope in yourself. It wouldn't be such a bad thing if you had something good in yourself to commend you to God, but you don't have anything. There's nothing. If not for Christ, then all is lost. We're, all is hopelessness. But thank the Lord for this. It brings me to the remedy of the whole thing. And now we come to the solution to this problem. Now, what we have is, in what I've just talked about, is a reiteration of verses 1 through 10. And Paul sets up the problem in verses 1 through 10. And he tells the Ephesians where they are. Now he tells them how God solves this problem. So let's look next at the third thing, and that is the cure. What is the cure for this? Well, there's no natural reason for it, nothing natural, and that ought to be self-evident from the previous two points. The cause is no heavenly relationship. There's no participation in the covenant. There is no community with God's people. There is no earthly remedy. There is no hope. They're without God. And so their inclusion in God's plan of salvation cannot be because of any natural reason. So here we have it, no natural reason. So we can say, first of all, about this, that this is not done by something that is within you. It's not done by something that is within you. It's impossible for this cure to come from inside you. 
Now let me talk about this one more time because I need to keep hammering this because this is what we face in our Baptist circles today. It's being taught in our Baptist colleges and taught in places where we send our kids to school. But when you say that God has done all that he can do and he can't do anymore and still you're not saved, where does that leave you? It only leaves you with one way that you could be saved and that's by something that you do. In that book that I quoted from about a week or so ago, the author, who otherwise I would say is a fine Christian man, he said this, he said, what is left is your decision. God is waiting on your decision. Now let's think about the whole thing one more time. God has done, this man says, God has done all that he can do for you. And you're still not saved. After all things that God has done for you, you are still not saved. And so God waits for your decision. How many of you can figure out what saved you then if that's true? How many of you can figure that out? Nobody? Nobody can figure it out? Please. If God's done all he can do and he waits for your decision and that's what saves you, then what saved you? Your decision. Wouldn't that be right? And so that means that it was something in you. But we've just made the statement here. The Bible's clear. It's not about something that's in you. Now, nothing could be further from the truth than that, and it's certainly not what Ephesians is teaching. So let me quickly run this down again. How are we saved? Not by our nature. It's not within our nature because in verse 3, Paul said, we are by nature the children of wrath. And so our human nature will never be enough to save us. We can't act outside of our, of our nature. We'll never choose Christ on our own because that's just not in our nature. It won't permit it. And so Paul said this, in my flesh dwells no good thing. The second thing that can't save, you can't be saved by your actions. It's not by any actions that come from within you because also in verse 3, Paul said that all that we ever do is fulfill the lust of the flesh. He said we walk according to the course of this world. And so our motives are never pure in anything that we do. Our motives are never right and they can never be meritoriously righteous. So it can't be any action that we've done. The third thing that it can't be, it can't be by our will. It can't be because simply of man's will because the will is depraved just like all of our faculties. Paul says in Romans very, in chapter 7, Romans 7 says very clearly, he says, the will to do that which is right is not in me. It doesn't exist in me. Now, we all know trusting Christ, that's a good thing for us to do. Following God, that's a good thing for us to do. But we can't do that simply out of our own will because our will is depraved. It's not in our makeup since the fall. So if we take our nature and we take our actions and we take our will and we exclude all of those things as the cure for how we're saved, then what do we have left? What else would there be inside of us that would cure this problem of being without Christ? Well, there is nothing left. There's nothing left at all. And so the conclusion has to be that you are saved not because of something that's in you. There's nothing naturally inherent in any person that would take us from being without Christ to now being in Christ. So how is it that we're cured? Well, this is the way. Secondly, letter B, by something done to you. How do you get saved? By something that's done to you. Now, Jesus said in John six twenty nine. This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. In other words, this is God's work. This isn't your work. 
And Paul reiterates that in Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Some time ago I was talking about synergism and salvation. And synergism means that you're saved by your cooperation with God. You do your part, and God does his part. And you may remember some time ago I used this illustration, but there was an old country boy who wanted to become a preacher, and so he was going to be ordained into the ministry. When the council began to question him about how he was saved, he said, I done my part, and God done his part. Well, the council was surprised by this. And they said, well, well he, he, he's confused. I mean, he's got the wrong idea. He's got some kind of a synergistic idea of salvation. So they began to question him a little bit further on what he meant by this. And that old country boy said this. He said, I was running away from God as fast as I could go. And he done took out after me and he run me down. And he said, I did my part. That was the sinning. And God did his part. That was the saving. And folks, that's how it's done. And let me tell you, that is far more accurate than the Baptist professor's idea at the Baptist college. We're not doing anything but running away from God. We've always run away from God. And what God did was to track us down. And God laid hold on us, and he grabbed us, and he did something to us. We didn't want it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. We, we would never have desired it in any way until one day God came with the gospel of Jesus Christ and he opened our eyes to the truth. And when he opened our eyes to understand what this was all about, that's when we began to desire God. We never would have desired him before. Before you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would never desire to know God. Now, there are people, of course, who who uh, say that they're interested in God and say they were believers in God, have never even heard the gospel. But they really don't even understand what knowing God is all about. But knowing God the way that you know God right now, if you're saved, I I, I know this for a fact. There is not a person in here who could tell me that before the gospel of Christ came to you, that you were out there seeking for God, you were trying to become a Christian, you were so desirous of it, you wanted it so badly that you were relentless and you wouldn't give up on it and you pursued it. Anybody here can raise your hand and say, that's how I got saved? I didn't get saved that way. I was sitting there on a row right where Brian is, about as far away from my dad who was preaching. And all of a sudden, bam, the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart. The Holy Spirit opened my eyes to the gospel of Christ. And all of a sudden, I said, that's what I want. I do want to believe. I will receive Christ as my Savior. That's the only way that you get saved. Now, let me notice here. Two erroneous conclusions about salvation. And folks, these two things, these seem to be the right way. This just seems all right. But the utter futility of thinking that there is something that you can do to be saved as the basis of salvation, something that you do, or even faith as the basis of salvation, can be summarized in these two erroneous conclusions. Number one, letter C on your listing sheet, salvation is not by following Christ's life. Now, we notice in verse 13 of our text that Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh. So how are we made nigh? Well, it's not by following Christ's life. It's not even by following Christ's teachings. Now, did you know that following Christ's teachings can never make you nearer to God? Actually, what it will do will drive you further away from God. Now, I want you to understand what I'm saying. 
Don't, don't misunderstand me. A lost person will never get near to God by following Christ's teachings or following Christ's life. He always ends up being driven further away. You see, it's far better for you to try to get close to God by keeping commandments. Looking in the Old Testament, trying to find out what the commandments are. It'd be a whole lot easier for you to get closer to God by doing that than it would to follow Christ. Now, why would I say that? Because in the Old Testament, it says, for example, you shall not commit adultery. Now, that's probably something all of us can keep from doing. Now, if I ask many of you tonight, have you ever committed adultery? I'm sure there'd be a whole lot of people in this auditorium and say, no, I've never committed adultery. And so you could probably keep from committing adultery. But following Christ is much harder than following the law because Christ said, even if you look at a woman to lust after her, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Just like I said Sunday, what Christ has done, he's up the ante here And now he leaves you without any hope because now not only do you have to just control physical actions, which you may be able to do, you may be able to control physical actions, but you also have to keep even the smallest thought from entering into your mind. That's a whole lot tougher. Well, how can you do that? How how can you keep even thoughts from coming into your mind? You know, that's a difficult thing to do, especially in this day and age when everywhere you go, I don't, I don't care where you go, but just about anywhere, you're going to find somebody who has half or less than their clothes on. How are you going to keep every thought pure? It's an impossibility. You can't do it. And so Christ's teachings are not going to bring you closer to God. It will drive you further away because the requirements are so much more stringent. So you could never be saved by saying, I'm going to follow Christ or I'm going to live like Christ lived. It'll just keep driving you further and further away because the impossibility is insurmountable. There's not a person left to himself who can follow Christ. And so it's not something you do. It has to be something done to you. Never come to the conclusion that all that I must do to follow Christ, or all that I have to do, I should say, to be saved, is to follow Christ. All that I have to do is to have faith because you can't have either one of those. Something has to happen to you first to enable you to have faith and enable you to follow Christ. Well, what is that something that has to happen? We found it all the way back up there in verse number 1 of this chapter. Chapter 2, verse number 1, where he said, You hath he quickened. You have to be made alive. You have to be regenerated first. Now, here's the second erroneous conclusion, and that is that salvation is not by hearing that God is love. Salvation is not by hearing that God is love. Now, I've already touched on this some, but some people think if we could just convince people that God is love, then they'll be saved. And they think that Jesus brings us to salvation by showing us that God is love. I mean, if people just knew that God was love, they would bask in his love. They would stay in his love. Their attitudes would change completely about God. They'd have a new appreciation for God if they just understood how much God loves them. One commentator said, Would men be more interested in God if they knew he was a God of love? Of course they would not. They would trade on it. They would say, oh, well, if God is a God of love, then I can do what I like. The love of God will forgive me. And that's the very thing that they're saying. Well, what are we telling people? God loves you so much that he wants to forgive you. 
And so we make the basis of forgiveness God's love. But the basis of God's forgiveness is not God's love. How do I know that? Well, we go to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is full of love. Now, you might think the Old Testament's full of wrath, but there's actually a lot of love in the Old Testament. Start reading the Psalms. And what do you find there? Oh, you find all kinds of good things about the love of God, don't you? Some great things there. But let me ask you, did the love of God ever save Israel? Israel was not saved by the love of God because salvation doesn't come on the basis of the love of God. So how is it then that we are made nigh to God? Now, here's the answer. It's the last statement on your listening sheet. How are we saved? We are saved by the blood that speaks. We're made nigh by the blood of Christ. You know, even John 3.16 does not say that God saved the world by love. It says God loved the world and sent Christ. The love of God doesn't have any grounds except through Christ. And John 3.16 says God gave his son. You ever think about that? What did God give his son for? Did he give him so that we could look at him? Did he give his son so that we could gaze at him? Did he, did he give his son so we would have companionship or so that we would have some good teachings to follow? Is that why he gave his son? That's not why God gave his son. God gave his son to die. God gave his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. He gave him so that he would shed his blood and that we would be saved by Christ's blood. John 1.29 says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming to him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, why did John call Jesus the Lamb? Because the Lamb is the animal of sacrifice. The Lamb is the animal that has to be killed in the Passover celebration. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so God's love, folks, means nothing at all without the shedding of Christ's blood. It won't do us one bit of good. So what we need to do is to listen to the blood that speaks. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so we must listen to the blood that speaks. Now, have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about the speaking blood? Back in the Old Testament, Cain killed Abel. And do you remember what God said to Cain? He said, the blood of thy brother cries to me from the ground. His blood was speaking. And what was his blood saying? His blood was saying judgment. His blood was saying vengeance. And it was saying a curse needs to be placed on Cain. But then we come to the New Testament. And what does the New Testament say? Well, the book of Hebrews says that the blood of Christ speaks better things than the blood of Abel. And what does the blood of Christ say? It says pardon. Christ's blood says forgiveness. His blood says peace. It tells us our punishment has been taken away. It tells us there is forgiveness for our sins. It says there is no judgment. There is no condemnation. And so the only way that we can be saved is through the blood that speaks, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And only in that way are we brought nigh to God. So time after time as we study Ephesians, we get the same message that comes out of this. And the same message is not you but God. Not you, but God. And yet the preaching that we hear from our pulpits today is not God, but you. Not God, but you. But nobody's ever going to be saved that way. 
I've said it before, and I'll, and I'll say this again. Somebody just needs to read and understand the book of Ephesians. With or without Christ, what's the danger of being without Christ? It's a terrible danger. So the question is, do you know him? Do you understand who Jesus is? And if you are saved tonight, then you, you need to praise God that you once had no heavenly relationship. At one time, there was no earthly remedy for you. And then there was no natural reason why you could be saved. It was only in what God has done for you. And that's the only way any person will ever be saved. So that's the, why, or that's the reason why I preach the, why, the way that I do. This is the reason. Because preaching this way brings all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. All the glory to God for the great things that he has done. We thank the Lord for salvation in Jesus Christ and what he's done not in what we do. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to preach your word tonight. Such profound truths that we find in the book of Ephesians and how these doctrines are put here to just lay us in the dust with no hope so that the only way that we can be saved is simply to look to you. And we do understand to you belongs all the glory. I ask you, Lord, you'd speak to hearts tonight. Just help us to understand better what you've done for us. Help us to realize where we came from and where we're going. And we'll just give you the praise for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.